Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Professor Kevin Gutzman. Kevin is a professor of history at Western Connecticut State University. Um, Today's episode was prompted by, and I started to explain this during the interview, but I, I, I heard Nikki Haley fumble through the question about the Civil War. And I started thinking, huh, okay, you know, I, what would a good answer be? So I started Googling um, and doing uh, uh, podcast searches, things like that. Of course, I'm biased. I did a Tom Woods Civil War search on, on uh, I think it was, yeah, on Spotify. And an episode with Tom Woods and Kevin Gutzman came up. I really enjoyed listening to it. Decided to reach out to him, and he was a, a great guest. I really appreciate Kevin coming on. If you're a fan of the Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Professor Kevin Gutzman. Uh, Kevin is a professor of history at Western Connecticut State University. Kevin has authored six books. Kevin, if it's all right, could you uh, give a, I don't know, a brief introduction? What's your academic background? And you've written six books. What have those books been, been about? Well, two of them are about American constitutional history. One of them is a New York Times bestseller, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution. Four of them are about the early American Republic, so the period from the Revolution up to the antebellum period. It's called the Early Republic. And my latest is called the Jeffersonians, the Visionary Presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. Okay. Uh, the reason I reached out to you, Kevin, is I, I heard Nikki Haley fumble away her question um, about what was the reason for, I think the question was simply, what was the reason for the Civil War? And she 
clearly was, I guess, nervous or misinformed or something, but she did not handle the question uh, very well. I don't think anyone's saying she handled it well. Kevin, could you tell me how would you have answered that question? <laughs> well, that's wow, that's an easy one, huh? Um, okay, the that, short of that it is, is kind of what she said at the beginning. That is basically but, she was like, "Oh," and she was cracking a little joke, like you know, I don't want to piss off my base on the right, but I don't, you know, I see why she was nervous. I guess if she wasn't prepared, but I will say, uh, uh, I'm sure you're more informed about this than her. What is your explanation or answer to the question? Well, I had the impression listening to her that she really had no idea. But what happened was, of course, the 1860 presidential election was won by Abraham Lincoln, who was the first Republican elected president. And before the election, several southern states had said that in case a Republican were elected, they would secede from the Union. And so after Lincoln's election, uh, essentially there were people in the North and in border states like Kentucky, for example, uh, who were trying to prevent that from happening. Lincoln, however, told his political allies, a tug has got to come. In other words, he thought there had to be some kind of conflict. And so he told them, we're not gonna make any kinds of compromises. And um, eventually uh, there had, by the time he was uh, inaugurated, been essentially secession across the entire deep south in response to his election and uh, he gave his inaugural address he began acting as president virginia which was the most populous the oldest the most politically important southern state first had a, a secession convention in which the delegates decided not to secede from the union and uh, in the wake of Lincoln's first days of performance in the presidency, the secession convention in Virginia reconvened and opted to secede. Now, there are different, uh, there's kind of different psychology in different states, but in general, the states that seceded all issued explanations and they all based them on the hostility of the Republican party to slavery in one way or another. And of course, that doesn't answer the question why there was a war. The fact that states seceded, if somebody else had been the Northern president, could have meant there wasn't, or could have gone off without there being a war. But Lincoln's position was that secession was constitutionally impossible. This was a significant dividing line in American politics at the time, of course. But his position was that taking the oath, the presidential oath, to take care that the laws are faithfully executed uh, meant that regardless whether a particular state purported to have seceded from the Union, it still was in the Union, that a state could not secede unilaterally was his position. And so he was not going to allow that. He did in early months, after weeks and months after his election, um, stand by until his allies to stand by as federal uh, facilities in seceding states, that is courthouses, military bases, post offices, were turned over to local authorities. 
Um, however, of course, he did make two exceptions. One was a small uninhabited island off the coast of Florida, and the other one was Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor in South Carolina. And uh, there ended up being a refusal of the South Carolina government to allow ongoing uh, Union occupation of Fort Sumter, and that's where the fighting started. So you could say, well, people commonly want to answer the question why the war happened by saying, by blaming one or the other side, by saying um, the, the responsibility entirely lies with this or that decision or this or that uh, political position. It seems to me, however, that it took two sides' decisions to make the war happen. One was the southern states purporting to secede, which uh, was met with the response from Lincoln, well, no, that's impossible, and I'm going to prevent it. So you could say, and it's, I think, most common that people say, the southern states said in their, their secession documents the reason they were seceding was that Lincoln, among other things, that Lincoln, uh, his election uh, posed a, a danger to slavery uh, and its ongoing existence, maybe in the Western territories, ultimately even in the states where it had long existed. Um, another, of course, necessity in this scenario was that Lincoln took the position that secession was impossible. If either of those had not been the case, there wouldn't have been a war. So, um, what it comes down to from my point of view is the question, what kind of union was it? Did the states have a right to secede? If they did have a right to secede, Lincoln was entirely wrong. If they didn't have the right to secede, then he was right and the southern seceding states were entirely wrong. Now, of course, Governor uh, Haley gave no indication of any of this in her just completely irrelevant, unresponsive answer to the question. So we could infer, I guess, that she doesn't know anything about it. It seems more likely to me that she was caught off guard and hadn't, prevent, hadn't prepared a politically palatable answer to the question to give in public. Kevin, is Surely it somebody who's been governor of South Carolina for years has an idea why the Civil War occurred. Even, if, it, seems even if it's just the, the you know, most commonly I actually I should ask what is the most co what is the consensus among history departments across the country uh, abbreviated version of, of the the reason for the Civil War and is it consistent with with your version uh, hmm. I think the far the most common way that people explain it is by saying the southern states seceded they said that they were seceding because Lincoln's election was a threat to slavery, and so the reason for the war was slavery. But, as I said, it seems to me that that's not a complete answer, because there could have been secession without a war. That there, there, <laughs> The decision that, that there would be a war was one that was made on both sides. If Lincoln had not decided that he was going to use force to prevent secession, there wouldn't have been a war. And on the other hand, if the southern states had not met his decision to uh, reject the idea that there had been secession with violence, there wouldn't have been a war. And of course, 
The fact that there was firing at Fort Sumter didn't mean there had to be a war. They could have stopped at any time. But the idea that firing at Fort Sumter was going to have to mean that day that 750,000 men would be killed and who knows how many seriously injured um, and how much property destruction and ultimately the end of slavery, that the fact that all that was going to come uh, was not inevitable at any point. So her, as I said, I think Governor Haley's response was just completely in, inexplicable. How she could not have had an answer to that after having been governor of South Carolina for years and years is beyond me. Um, and uh, as I said, I do think that the most common answer, even among academics, is inadequate because the fact that Southern states seceded because they thought Lincoln was a threat to slavery didn't mean there had to be a war. That took two, it takes two to tango in that connection. Would you consider yourself to be anti-war? Uh, well, I'm not a pacifist. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a proponent of it, um, but sometimes it's been necessary, I think. I, I think, for example, that that uh, after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, there was no obvious alternative response for President Roosevelt and Congress to make than to go to war with Japan. Uh, so that seems to me to be a completely moral and reasonable uh, response to that event. Do you identify as a libertarian or do you identify as anything politically? Uh, well, I usually tell people I'm a Jeffersonian, so uh, yeah, I have libertarian preferences, but as it, uh, some people, many people, I guess, uh, when they hear libertarian, they mean anarchist. I'm not an anarchist, so um, it depends how you personally define the term, I suppose. Kevin, I read online that in 2008 you voted for Obama, is that right? I did, yes, because I thought that... Uh, I still think that McCain was a terrible alternative. He was the worst major party nominee in my lifetime, I think. I think his his foreign policy was dangerous and thoughtless. And after that election, several months later, uh, a reporter asked him something about the difference between Shia and Sunni Islam. And he said he didn't know the difference between Shia and Sunni Islam even though he'd been supporting wars in the Middle East for years and years. Thought he didn't know the first thing about it. So, yes, uh, I thought it was a bad choice, but one was less bad than the other. Does that anti-war instinct within you, does that cause you to be a little bit more critical of Lincoln's legacy? Uh, huh. Well, I do think that people are slow to reckon with the toll that came from having war. My, one of my um, mentors in graduate school, a 19th century American political history expert, Michael Holt, um, wrote an essay in the American Historical Reviews, uh, I believe it was the American Historical Reviews, um, Lincoln Bicentennial issue, in which he said, 
The period between Lincoln's election and his inauguration was the nadir of his statesmanship. That is the all-time low point of Lincoln's statesmanship. And what was happening in that period? Well, what was happening was that Lincoln was telling his his political allies, don't do anything to prevent it. And the way he put it was, a tug has got to come, right? So he told he told his allies in Congress who were trying to head off some kind of horrible conflict, yeah, don't do that because... We've got to have a fight at some point. Might as well be now. And I think that was just an awful disaster. So I don't even really think that's arguable. So um, that's the way I think about it. Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, of course, running for the Republican nominee for president, trying to get the the nominee. Um, I heard him say, in his opinion, Abraham Lincoln is the greatest president ever. What are your thoughts on that? Well, he was certainly very important. I would have to say that I think George Washington was the most important man in American history. Without him, there wouldn't have been an American Revolution. If there had been, it wouldn't have been successful. If it if it had been, there wouldn't have been a Philadelphia Convention. If even if there had been, the Constitution wouldn't have been ratified. He, Link, uh, Washington was absolutely indispensable as one long dead biographer put it. So I'd have to say, I think Washington was the most important, still the most important person in American history. Whatever Ramaswamy, I guess Ramaswamy probably just wanted to tweak uh, Governor Haley. Yeah. It wasn't hard to do. No. Uh, Do you like Governor Haley as a candidate for president? I don't think she's very thoughtful. That was my impression of her before this happened. I I think she's calculating and yet not thoughtful. <laughs> she's interested in po- her own political advancement. So uh, I don't think there's a lot of there there, I guess I'd say. When it comes to historians around Abraham Lincoln, I mean, that's what maybe the most commonly written about. Def- I think, is that the most commonly written about president of all time? Is that yes. right? Okay. Yes, yes. Um, right. Actually, there are only only two or three subjects have been have been subject of more books. One is Jesus Christ. One is Napoleon Bonaparte, and I think Lincoln's third. Wow. Maybe wrong about that. Yeah. So <laughs> it's an interesting, and of course, it really is an interesting subject. It's just so awful. You know, seven hundred fifty thousand men died in the war including, for example, half of the military-aged white men in Mississippi were killed in the war. That leaves, that's leaving aside all the people who were wounded, who were mentally um, damaged by their participation. It was just awful beyond comprehension. So one thing I don't understand at all is why people want to be reenactors. Right? Let's go out and play that we're in the Civil War. And uh, that does not sound like fun to me. How about if I don't know. How about if we go throw darts or go to the gym or something? I, I don't want to. I don't think I want to go play Civil War today. Thank you. If you had to give me the name of one of the most prominent Abraham Lincoln historians who gets it right, in your opinion, and then if you could, one of the most prominent Abraham Lincoln historians who gets it wrong, if you're able to give me one for each, that would be great. Oh boy. That's a hard question. Sorry. <laughs> um, well, David Donald 
um, uh, is an obvious kind of mainstream uh, historian who's, you know, there's a tendency among people who write about major political figures to be idolaters of those people. And this is especially evident in the kind of corpus of scholarship about Lincoln. I mentioned before um, Michael Holt uh, criticizing his his uh, behavior between his election and his inauguration. And that, I think, was not a very stern criticism, but it's very uncharacteristic of the way that people discuss him. So uh, it's, it's, I don't know what more to say about it. It's, uh, it displeases me, I think. People should, uh, in general, I think historians should try to take a dispassionate, detached approach, not, not to be um, proponents of their subjects. Fanboys. That's how I approach them. I've written about uh, eminent people too, but I don't think you're going to find fanboy treatment in what I've done. So David Donald is one that comes to mind when it comes to prominent historians who went along with the, the more, almost like a fanboy type narrative. No, no, no. The opposite. Oh, okay. the opposite. I, I, yeah, I was saying, I think his is one of the, one of the best treatments. Um, partly because his writing style is very accessible, partly because he does not take the partisan approach one finds in many biographical uh, texts. Um, as far as bad ones. Wow. There are, there are many. Uh, I don't even, I, I can't really choose one as the most offending in that connection. What is the the reputation for David Donald? Well, he was a professor at Harvard. He was the he was a mentor of other several other people who become prominent historians. So it's very positive, I think. Even, uh, even within academic circles, within the history. Oh yes, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So do you think really what the the person asking that question, who Nikki Haley has since accused of being a Democrat Party plant? (laughs) Why would you have to be a Democratic Party plant to ask that question? It was such a nothing question. I think essentially any half-educated American should be able to come up with a better answer than that. He's not going to come up with the answer I just gave you because it's going to be more likely kind of unalloyed positive account of Lincoln, but at least he'll be able to say something. And she she gave no answer at all. It, it had no content. It was just words. It made me think I was listening to the vice president. <laughs> Do you think Kamala Harris would have handled that question better? I think it would have been pretty similar. That's my point. Yeah. Okay. Well, <sighs> so, Kevin, you mentioned that or we have discussed a little bit that it's probably not the best idea to worship or be a fanboy for presidents or political figures. If you had to, you, you said, uh, George Washington, are, are there any other, what other presidents did good things throughout our history? I didn't say I was a fanboy of George Washington. Okay. Now, yeah, you, thank you for the I clarity. Said, I said he played an essential role in in winning the revolution, in writing the constitution, in starting the federal government on a particular path, I think 
uh, he was essential. There wouldn't have been an American victory in the revolution without, it's hard to imagine how it could have been successful without George Washington. So that's not the same as saying, I think he was flawless. I don't think he was flawless, but we don't, at least I don't expect people to be flawless and I don't pretend they are. Are any other, do any other presidents come to mind? If I were to ask, uh, is there another president that deserves certain degrees of significant praise or, or at least acknowledging that they had a positive impact on our country? Oh boy. Uh, well, it's, it's kind of a matter of one's own taste. I tend to be a proponent of Jeffersonian constitutionalism. So I like people who favored the notion of uh, decentralized government and limited federal role in the economy and so on. And so people like Jefferson, Tyler, uh, Coolidge, Reagan, um, I guess, but um, I can, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of critical things to say about each of them. So uh, I would, I, but I would encourage people to look into their, the fact that there is a tradition in American politics of originalist constitutionalism of the idea that in general, the economy should be left to run of its own instead of being managed by the government and so on. So that, that's my predilection. Kevin, was your highest selling book of all time? Was it the politically incorrect guide to the constitution in 2007? It was, yes. That was a New York Times bestseller. Okay. In your opinion... It, it's a Jeffersonian account of American constitutional history. It's actually the only Jeffersonian account of American constitutional history that's now in print. So if people listening are interested in that, they should take a look at my book. And I'm not encouraged, I'm not saying you have to buy it. Just check it out from the library, but please read it. In 2024... Does something come to mind when I ask what is the, the biggest violation of the Constitution that is occurring today? Well, the president takes an oath to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, and currently he's, he's willfully ignoring the fact that we have millions of unvetted foreigners entering the country through the southern border. That's, that's just, to me, it's astounding. So there's that. And the, the welfare that goes into that, too, is just, I, I have no idea how you even go about trying to do the accounting for all that. How, how is that going to impact our economy long term? I, I have no idea. I, it's not only the economy, it's the whole polity. You have people from radically different philosophical and political backgrounds. As I said, they're coming in unvetted. Usually, the way the system is supposed to work is that people uh, apply to enter the country. They're given permission to do so. They are given official documents. If they want to become citizens, they have to demonstrate that they've come to understand American history and the American form of government and so on. And this, none of this is happening right now. Millions of people are being allowed just to enter because they feel like it. We don't have any idea who they are. Although I shouldn't say we don't have any idea who any of them are because numerous people who've been on the terror watch list have been identified, drug gang leaders and and participants have been identified and so on it's to me it's a calamity that this is people don't think of it this way but this is a major constitutional issue again 
president swore that he would take care that the laws are faithfully executed, and he's clearly decided he's not going to do that in this connection. This, so this is an issue. Uh, this is the kind of thing that goes back to, um, to me, it goes back to the Constitution. Most people don't think of it as a constitutional question, but every time I I have it brought to mind, it makes me think. I remember Joe Biden taking the oath of office, and he swore that he would take care that the laws were faithfully executed, which he is not doing. So that's that's highly problematic, and more problematic is that nobody's making this point. Is any political figure, maybe a Republican candidate, uh, touching on the topic of immigration somewhat adequately, in your opinion? Uh, well, I think a lot of Democrats are are remaining silent on this. I haven't heard my state's I live in Connecticut, where all the all both of our senators and all five representatives are Democrats. I haven't heard any of them make public statements about this. So uh, that's an interesting phenomenon. It's going by, and the media aren't even saying, you know, Senator Blumenthal, Senator Murphy, what's your position on this question? Um, and it does seem more or less to have become a partisan question, which it didn't used to be. Uh, until recently it wasn't so that to me is problematic too and of course all of them took an oath to you know abide by the constitution have you heard anything out of desantis or vivek or nikki haley or anything about immigration possibly that sounds good to you well all of them have talked about it that's what i meant when i said it's partisan it seems to have become a partisan issue the but Democrats, do, do they seem to have good solutions at all in your opinion well, I don't think it's a, it's not rocket science. Uh, if you were desirous of going to Canada without permission, you would soon find yourself back in the United States. You know, if you gave that a shot, you'd be right back here. So it's not as if people in the United States are the only people in the world who don't know how to have a border. It's just that Apparently, the people in authority in the executive branch of the federal government have decided they don't want to have a border. Has this ever happened before? Well, we've only had we've only had this kind of press of people wanting to enter the country for uh, I don't know about half of our history. We we had significant immigration at the at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, and then we had another wave at the beginning of the 20th century, but People, you probably know people whose parents or grandparents came into the United States at the beginning of the 20th century, could be great-grandparents by now, I guess, and uh, they had serious vetting. I've known people who had to wait, you know, they got stopped at Ellis Island, they had to wait there for weeks to see what, see whether they were carrying any kind of communicable diseases. This is another thing that's not being checked on all these people who are entering illegally through our southern border at the moment. So. That, to me, is a, a major problem, and it's a constitutional problem. As I said, most people don't think of it as a constitutional problem, but the president is clearly not, not doing what he swore he would do. Would you predict Trump would be better? If he gets in office, he'll be better at the border. <laughs> uh, well, that wouldn't be my first choice, but certainly we didn't have the same kind of difficulty in this connection 
before that we as we have now. So, yeah, I think so. It's hard to imagine that any of any of the Republican candidates would fail to improve the situation at the border. And it doesn't seem there's going to be a significant alternative to Biden on the Democratic side. So likely it'll be one of one of those two or three Republicans against President Biden. Kevin, that's, I'm sure that's going to be one of the main issues in the election campaign. Well, you, you, you would think the Biden administration, you would think they know that it's not like it's not popular. The current the current issue isn't a popular issue among the voting base, is it? The current no, immigration not, stance, the current stance no, on immigration is not popular, I don't think, is it? Actually, the polling I've seen has shown that it's very unpopular among key Democratic Party constituencies like Hispanics, blacks, people who live in, in northern cities. They're all very unhappy about this. So it's it's perplexing that it's being allowed to go on because um, it's not going to help their electoral prospects, but maybe they calculate that Trump, who seems to be the likely Republican nominee, is so unpopular that they can win the White House again anyway. That That is all I can guess. Going to be a very exciting 2024 to see what the hell happens with this um, political uh, presidential campaign from, I guess, Trump versus Biden. And then there's Kennedy and whoever, you know, uh, just be a very interesting year. A lot going on from Israel and Palestine and Ukraine and, and of course, the immigration. Be a very fascinating year politically. Yeah, that reminds me of the old Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. Right, it may be interesting, but it's just it kind of makes you grit your teeth, I think. The idea of Biden and Trump again. Oh, my goodness. I'm not the only one who doesn't like that idea, I think. Do you like any of the political candidates on any of the sides? <laughs> well, um, if, if constitutionalism and the border are in not having unnecessary military activity are your chief policy interests, then some of them are obviously better than others. I mean, I think obviously the, the current situation is untenable. The a couple of the candidacies on the Republican side are are pretty bad in this connection. I mean, Governor Haley, I think, sounds like a neocon to me. So I'm not happy with that. But um yeah, and I wouldn't say I was a fan of any of the people who are running right now, but you can make distinctions among them pretty easily, I think. I don't know how educated I am about the definition of neocon. Um, I heard Thomas Massey said he does not think Ron DeSantis is a neocon. And I live no, here. He's not. In, oh, okay. Why is he not? Well, because he doesn't stand for, he doesn't have the same impulse uh, in favor of military intervention as characterizes neoconservatives or leads people to use the term neoconservative for people who aren't technically neoconservatives. So earlier we briefly uh, talked about John McCain's candidacy in 2008. I don't think McCain was a neocon. I think he was just a war hawk. And 
Um, he wasn't as thoughtful as the neocons about it. Um, so this is a class of people that I think have brought negative consequences on us by their policy successes. That is, by getting what they wanted, they gave us wars that cost us a lot of money and a lot of dead and wounded soldiers and resulted in a lot of destruction overseas. And for what? So um, that, I don't think, is DeSantis's outlook. He's he's not a, a fellow who looks to me as if he's quick. To, he's going to be quick to pull the trigger. And... Uh, I think Haley does kind of sound like one. So that is a significant distinction. I also, don't you just get the impression listening to the two of them uh, and um, Christy uh, talk that Governor Haley's just, you know, she's not as swift on the uptake as those other people. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, no, Governor Haley has not come across very well, I don't think, in in many right. many cases obviously there's some very powerful people who for whatever reason are still throwing tons of money her way so she has uh, some people at least buying into it i guess right i th- i understand it's kind of the bush republicans who are in favor of her candidacy but my understanding is that she really has in mind that she'd like to be vice presidential nominee maybe that's possible um, I have heard Ron DeSantis speak of military action when it comes to like Ukraine and and um, I think even the southern border. Like what was the one Republican debate where he said something like, we'll come through and we'll strike them dead. And it was just real, sounded real aggressive militarily. And of course, he's a Navy SEAL. I, in my mind, I associate that with like pro-war type stuff. Is he not as pro-war as I'm saying, you don't think? I haven't had that impression. I think he has said that uh, where he could identify drug gang facilities across the border in Mexico, he would hit them. But um, I don't know. I, I haven't heard him say anything on that same line about other current issues. And of course, the one that Washington establishment wants to pour more and more money in now that they're not able to do that in Afghanistan is the Ukraine, which seems to me like a foolish thing. It was back during the uh, Daddy Bush and and um, Clinton years that our political leadership decided that the Ukraine would not be a NATO member. And now that they're in a war with Russia, we're acting as if they were a NATO member. It doesn't make any sense to me that so people, a lot of people in Washington seem to have the idea that there's no overseas military issue that the United States should not be involved in. And I tend to take the opposite approach. I'm sure you do, too. Yeah, I won't claim to be the most knowledgeable about it, but I I, I do. I mean, especially with our what are we at? Thirty five. 34 trillion dollars in debt most of the time we're just borrowing money i think straight from china right no i think they're just the fed is creating money okay so that doesn't well, that, sound why, good that's why we have price inflation of a significant to a significant degree it's because the fed has been creating money and that is by definition inflation so you get higher prices and this is another issue that really bothers me. I think neither 
Trump nor Biden will do anything about it. Trump actually, when he ran in 2016, he was the first Republican presidential nominee ever who had promised, if elected, he would do nothing about the coming bankruptcy of Social Security and and, uh, Medicare. So that remains his position. And of course, Biden's position is also that he will do nothing about it. So we have a really parlous kind of situation. Are there solutions to Social Security and Medicare, things like that? Yeah, you have to pay attention to math, right? You have to decide, okay, we're going to have X amount of income, and here's the amount we can spend. In other words, we have to become adults. We're used to behaving as children. We want more spending, so we'll have it. We'll just have the Federal Reserve create more money. But the problem is it can't go on. You know, it's math. Math will win in the end. And we're about to hit the point at which neither Social Security nor Medicare benefits can be paid to the existing retirees. So um, it's going to be a calamity. And as I said, I think I'm certain neither Biden nor Trump will will ever address this issue. That's why I hope there's going to be somebody else elected. I heard, I read an article recently that said some of the Ukrainian government employees are having to wait to receive their their uh, paychecks right now. Yeah, they're being paid by us. Okay, so not only... <laughs> they're being paid by us. Yes. Not only do we need to try to figure out how to balance our personal finance sheet, or not personal, but, you know, national debt uh, situation, um, but apparently we also, I guess, and then Israel's struggling right now. Uh, um, economically, I don't know how much more we'll send there. It, I, I, I'm not an expert on any of these topics. It just seems kind of discouraging to see it all unfolding right in front of our eyes. And, and the inflation is just going to keep getting worse, I think. Well, it doesn't take expertise. It's just math. If there's more, If there are more dollars in circulation, the value of each dollar is less. So... As the government borrows more money, that is, puts more money in circulation, prices continue to rise. And everybody everybody in Washington knows this. And as long as voters don't hold their feet to the fire, it will continue to happen. So um, it's, it's distressing to think about. Kevin, you said earlier you are not an anarchist. Right. I'm not an anarchist. No, I don't think it's possible. I don't think I want to be in a situation in which there are no police. I like to have government, fire department. Um, so there, there, there has to be some kind of military uh, structure for the country. I would like to have the border enforced. There are some few things the government has to do. And an anarchist can say, well, if we if we got rid of the government, something would arise. But to me, that's not a that's not an adult approach to the problem. So no, I'm not an anarchist. I'm a minarchist. I, I have some some few essential functions the government ought to perform, and the rest I wish it weren't performing. I guess a Murray Rothbard type outlook would say, okay, in theory, Kevin, that sounds good. However, naturally the government just constantly this is what it does they it's supposed to be a limited government it just gets so big and then it's out of control everybody's getting rich off of it and shit like that um has there been a government throughout i guess 
throughout history is my question <laughs> that that did manage these things well. So you, you're you're more of a minarchist. Is there a good example historically that you would point to? Well, America had minarchy up till the 1930s, and we had gigantic economic growth in the 18th century and through the 19th century. Um, essentially, it was in the 1930s that voters decided to allow the federal government to take control of much of American life. And this has come to be a habit. So, yeah, it's possible. It's happened before. We had better economic situation when we didn't have this intrusive, gigantically expensive government that we have now. And people don't remember that. So FDR, during his time in office... Um, well, that was the, the the change among the intellectual elite began really during the Wilson administration. But yeah, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, twenty years, essentially, if you count Truman, um, did completely switch around the government. Did result in or did lead to a situation in which federal courts were going to say Congress could spend money on whatever it wanted to and so on. And people have just gotten used to the idea now that if you have a problem, you should say the federal government ought to solve it. So this, this is the issue. That's actually, this is the subject of the, my book we were talking about earlier, the politically incorrect guide to the constitution, um, that we had a radically different kind of a government before the 1930s. And we had, the highest economic growth in American history in the 19th century. So government is a break on economic growth. I'm looking at the whitehouse.gov official website, and it says Woodrow Wilson, a leader of the progressive movement, was the 28th president. Um, it says after a policy of neutrality at the outbreak of World War One, Wilson led America into war in order to, quote, make the world safe for democracy. Was he a good yeah, president? Actually, was he a good president? He had run for re-election on the slogan, he kept us out of war. And then as soon as he was re-elected and inaugurated again, he got us into the war. So uh, I think he was actually the worst president. He he not only did he completely remake the uh, constitutional, well, not only did he kick off the transformation of the constitutional system, but he got us into this god-awful war that arguably was the worst thing that ever happened. World War I led to terrible problems we've had to deal with ever since. Communism, fascism, uh, uh, Japanese imperialism, terrible problems in the Middle East. It all It's all traceable to, at least I trace it, to Woodrow Wilson. The Federal Reserve was created in 1913. That's when... Wilson, of course, took office. Do those right. who, who deserves more blame there? More blame. Well, uh, it took prominent political actors to make these things happen. So Wilson was in favor of he he was generally in favor of the whole progressive transformation of the country, including the Seventeenth Amendment, which switched from having state legislators elect U.S. senators to having them be popularly elected. And what that meant was an end to the structural break on concentration of power in the federal government, 
which I think is just a complete inversion of the way the system was set up. Again, back to that Jeffersonian uh, vision of it. So, the, 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 of course, the American Revolution was fought on behalf or in favor of local self-government. People didn't say we want to we want to be taxed enormously from Washington D.C. So we're going to f- make the British leave. The point was, if they're going to be taxed, it should be in from Hartford or from Philadelphia or from Charleston, but preferably um, within their states. Functions should be decentralized too. Though Jefferson said, you know, of course, in a conflict, he would favor the states over the federal government, but then within a state, he would favor the counties over the states, and then he, within a county, would favor the wards over the counties. So the idea is, I know it's kind of romantic at this point, but the idea is that the more local it is, the more efficient it'll be, and the more responsive. So Wilson is, you know, he's not solely responsible for all the bad things that have happened since his uh, inauguration as president, but he, to my mind, had a more importantly negative influence on the course of American history than anyone else. Okay. Great stuff, Kevin. I really appreciate you coming on the, the show today. Before we wrap Happy up, to do it. Yeah, before we wrap up the episode, if someone's interested in hearing more about what you have to say, of course, you have your six uh, published books, but how could they learn more about you? What are your, if you have any type of call to action, someone's listening and they, they, they like what you have to say, what would you tell them? Well, they, first they could take a look at my website, which is kevingutzman.com. That's K-E-V-I-N-G-U-T-Z-M-A-N.com. And I'm also... Uh, faculty member at Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, which is at libertyclassroom.com. For, among other things, you can find my courses on American constitutional history and on the life of Thomas Jefferson at libertyclassroom.com. So first thing is my website, Next Liberty Classroom. Okay. Well, Professor Kevin Gutzman, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. You're welcome.